0: Good morning, everybody. It's a uh, beautiful spring-type morning, but I, I will confess I'm a little afraid that spring is, is teasing us at this point only to get cold and then come yet again, but I'll take it this morning. It's beautiful out there, and it's a beautiful morning to come together and, uh, and worship with one another, to, to sing hymns and, and, and songs of praise and to sit under God's Word together. So thank you for coming this morning. As I've mentioned before, oftentimes on my way to work, uh, I get my uh, recap of what's going on in the world around me by listening to NPR on the way to work. Uh, That way I get uh, news locally and and nationally and globally and a little bit of like bluegrass and just weird stuff thrown in there as well. But this week I, I, and it's funny because I actually just heard it this week but I, I heard an interesting study that was conducted uh, by social scientists in, here in the United States and in Britain and in Germany, but they were, uh, they were testing the polarization of people and the, uh, um, the, the partisanship, uh, the, the stance that people take on what politicians say. And the way that they would test this is they would just give a quote or a statement that someone has said without telling them who said it and then ask if they agree or not. And more often than not, people would agree with a quote that someone had said even if it was someone that they would normally fight against and disagree with. And then the second round of tests, they would take a quote from somebody and then after they they gave the person the quote, they would actually say, who said the quote? you know, depending on which political party they belong to, and then people would either accept or reject that statement, mostly based off of who said it. But the really interesting part was in the third round of tests that they would give people a quote, but then they would attribute it to someone from the opposite political party. And then people would agree or disagree with that quote, not based off of what the quote itself was, but based off of who said it. And so these tests revealed a lot about the way that that people uh, not just uh, view sound bites, or I guess hear sound bites, but the way that uh, people are willing to listen to one another, even if it's someone that we would normally disagree with. And more often than not, if it comes from someone that, uh, partisan-wise, that we stand against, we're not even willing to listen to what that person has to say just based off of what political party that they belong to. And it was this reminder that right now, and maybe it's just me, I don't know, but it seems like we are living in one of the most divisive cultures in history. There's always been conflict. There's always been arguments and battles and fights and wars and all of this stuff. But it seems like more and more people are being turned against one another more out of party affiliations or paradigm shifts or thoughts than the core of what people actually stand for. People are more torn against one another based off of a group stance than their actual thoughts. Uh, and more often than not, this leads to isolation. Uh, in, in such an age of, of all this uh, connectedness through social media, we're actually seeing more and more division instead of more and more unity. And, and, and in fact, we see that most people just end up in an echo chamber surrounded by people that view and think and speak the same way. And these divisions can be found in all sorts of different areas, uh, ranging not just political affiliation, but to where people stand on LGBT issues or their stance on immigration or with all of the the hashtags that have come up over the past few years of, of the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter, all of these things, which there are elements of good truth inside each of these things. But people take a stance and, and end up refusing to even listen to anyone who believes differently. And it's not just in the outside world, it's happening even within the church. And it's happened in the church for generations, uh, even from, from things of, of simple things of what is the proper way to baptize, or what songs are you or are you not allowed to sing in a church. Even within the the PCA a few years ago, there was a huge argument of pastors yelling at one another of the proper way to take the Lord's Supper. Are you or are you not allowed to dip the bread in the wine or grape juice? And there were people yelling at each other and and questioning each other's belief in Jesus over this way to take communion. A few weeks ago, we even saw the, uh, I, I don't know if you saw this in the news or not, but the United Methodist Church has essentially begun to, to split and this, chasm is, or this schism has begun because of the church's stance on will they or will they not ordain LGBT members as clergy. And the church is beginning to, to split apart. And so it's not just the outside world, it's happening even within the church because we've become so accustomed to fighting over divisions that oftentimes it's easy to forget The core of the church is the gospel. One of today's huge buzzwords is this word inclusion. And it's meant to to take all these people that are normally on the outskirts. The the people that are not, another word is representation. That's getting tossed around a lot lately. But inclusion, are, are these outsiders being included in the larger picture? But the interesting thing is, with all this push for inclusion for all these separate groups, they're actually becoming more and more exclusive because you have to agree wholeheartedly with everything that they say and believe or else you're on their outside. And so in this push for more inclusion, these groups end up becoming more and more exclusive. But then we look at the gospel and we see that at the core of the gospel, Jesus makes one of the most exclusive statements ever. That in, in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That the way to the Father is not found in being good enough or being a, a moral person. It's not found in, in many paths to God that you can follow Muhammad or Buddha or, or any of these other things and still get to the same end point. It's not moralism. It's not supporting the, the a good enough cultural uh, cause that the only way to the Father is submitting to Jesus Christ. And that is one of the most divisive statements that has ever been recorded in history. It's extremely exclusive. But the beauty of what we see in this passage in Ephesians 3 is that that exclusive statement of Christ reveals one of the most inclusive faiths possible. Because we see in this passage that this passage encourages Every person to submit to the exclusive claims and statements of Christ. First, in verses 14, or not 14, in, for, in verses 1 through 7, because we're not even at 14 yet. In verses 1 through 7, because the gospel includes the outsider. So we see inclusion for the outsider. Every person should submit to the exclusive claim of Christ secondly in verses eight through ten, because the gospel includes the fallen, and third in verses eleven through thirteen, because the gospel includes the suffering. before I go any further, let us pray, gracious heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together that we can sit in your word that we can see what what your people wrote and recorded generations ago, that it was not just true then, but your truth applies to us here today. And so God, I pray that in this time and in this place, that God, that you would pour out your Spirit, that you would be with us, that you would speak through a broken man like myself to reveal your truth, that this wouldn't be my effort, or my ideas, or or, or my outlook on life, but God, that your truth would speak through me. Be with us now in this time. I pray this in the beautiful name of Christ. Amen. Now, for a quick recap of of where we are in the the letter to the church uh, uh, in Ephesus, uh, well, that's, where, that's what, what this is. That's what the book of Ephesians is. It's a letter to the church in Ephesus. And at this point in Paul's life, he's actually on house arrest. And this is uh, mentioned briefly at the very end of, of Acts 28. That uh, uh, At this point in Paul's life, he's under arrest, confined to his home or confined to a home, uh, but he's, he's able to receive visitors, and he's writing letters to churches that he's helped plant and minister in, and so he's sending them instruction and encouragement. And this, church, or this letter to the church in Ephesus is not so much a letter of correction as you really see with the letters to, to the Corinthians, but this is a letter of just reminding them of the things that are important. It's reminding them of the redemptive work of Christ and how that leads to unity within the church and how... The work of Christ uh, directs the con- uh, person's conduct in the church and in the home and in the larger world. And at the end of chapter 2, that there was uh, the, this revelation that the, the work of Christ makes all people, regardless of background or where they come from, all people are now citizens of God's kingdom in and through Christ. And so, that is where we're picking up this morning as we see how the Gospel includes the outsider. In verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, that he's reminding the Ephesians of his commitment, not just to them, but to Gentiles themselves because at this point in history, the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, had been the God of Israel. That that was who Israel worshipped. There were all these other gods and, and options uh, that, you could, that people would choose from, mostly based off of where they grew up, where they were raised, what family they lived in. But the gospel has now been brought through Israel to the entire world. That these Gentiles who were outsiders have now been brought into a covenant relationship with the God of Israel. And Paul is reminding them of his commitment, not just to this church, but to all of those who are considered outsiders. Continuing in verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. And this is recorded in what we know as Acts chapter 9 of how Paul uh, at one point had been persecuting the church, but on the road to Damascus had a a miraculous revelation where he encountered Christ and was struck blind. And, And yet through that whole process was led... And brought from a persecutor of the church into one of the church's, if not the church's, biggest evangelist. That he went from trying to destroy the church to advancing the kingdom. And all of this through this miraculous event uh, that is recorded in Acts 9. And then in 4-5. through When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That ever since Genesis 3.15, that God has promised hope. God has promised a Messiah, a Redeemer, someone that would come and restore what is broken. And there are glimpses of this hope and this Messiah all through the Old Testament. Hints of what is to come. Glimpses of the one that God will send. And it's almost this sense of a a door just being slightly cracked open that every time you walk past the door, you just get a glimpse into that room on the other side and you can see a tiny little bit of what is coming. And as the Old Testament progresses, that that crack in the door gets larger and larger. And you can see more and more of God's promise being fulfilled. You can see more and more of the hope that is coming. And then all of a sudden, with with the birth and life and ministry of Jesus, that door is kicked open. And you can see the promised one that God has given to His people the hope that is met in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And then the apostles and the prophets are the ones stepping through the door, bringing that hope to the people. That what we once saw as glimpses has now been fully revealed and interacted with. And so the generations before Paul did not know what was coming fully, but they had a glimpse. They had hope. And Paul says, but now we have the full revelation of God in and through Jesus Christ. And this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The beautiful thing uh, about the the language that this was written in, uh, the the Greek that this was written in, is that the word for Gentile also means nation. So whenever it says Gentiles, you can also read it as nations. And so when he says that this promise or the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, these, the nations are fellow heirs. The outsiders are fellow heirs. And this is a fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abram in Genesis 12-3 when He says that in you, this is God to Abram, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That the covenant of God, or the, the, the promise of God was never just intended to, to rest solely on Israel. But that all the way back in Genesis, God knew that He was going to be bringing the, the outsider in. That those who are on the outside of this nation, on the outside of this relationship, would one day find their hope in God, in Yahweh, in this covenant relationship. That God's covenant promise to Abram is met and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. That pretty much the entire, if you're reading it in your Bible, it's, it's like a, it looks like a paragraph. In the Greek, it's actually one extremely long run-on sentence, and Paul is horrendous with his run-on sentences. If you ever study Greek, I'm warning you now, reading Paul hurts. But that all all of that thought that we just read through, Paul is saying, of all that, this is the gospel that I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. This, This gospel of bringing the outsider in, I mentioned uh, uh, in a previous sermon that in the in this cultural age and in, in the in the biblical time that Paul lived, that the the Jewish temple had an outer court called the court of Gentiles that they were basically allowed through the front door, but they weren't allowed much further than that. It's almost like if you were to walk here into the school, but you couldn't get past like the the front window where. The offices are you had to, that was as far as you could come in. Israel was used to being on the outside. They were the rejects. And yet Paul is saying that this gospel is meant for them as well, that they are no longer outsiders, but they're brought in and made fellow heirs. They're brought from the outer court into a relationship with the living God. And so Paul, even though he's in prison, he's in or he's on house arrest, he's devoted his life to this God and to this gospel that is committed to taking the outsiders and bringing them in. And so even though Jesus makes one of... If not the most exclusive statement ever, that statement takes those that are on the outside and brings them in. That is the very definition of inclusiveness. And he's so committed to this gospel, to advancing the kingdom of God, of bringing the outsider in. And yet, God has always shown care for the outsider. This isn't anything new to those who are familiar with the Old Testament. The laws that you see in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God gave repeated laws of caring for the sojourner and for the alien. Even in the way that Israel was told to glean their crops, that they would leave some on the edges of their fields for the alien and the outsider and the reject. That those that man has always considered on the outside, God has always shown compassion for. And so this God who shows compassion for the outsider tells Abram that all of the families of the world will be blessed through your family. And just take a moment to realize that. Let that sink in, that your faith today is a fulfillment of the covenant promise of God to Abram, that a promise that was made thousands of years ago is met and fulfilled through Jesus in your faith. that that is God keeping his promise. And so I have to ask, who are the outsiders around you? the ones who are different from you, the, the strange, the ones that don't belong? Is it just the ones who look different from you? Those of you are the, the, the ones that, maybe it's skin color, maybe it's the for me it was always the, the, the preppy guy that, that looks different from me. Is it those that think different from you? Who vote for a different political party from you? For those of you that are still in school that, that uh, uh, go to the, the rival school on the, the other side of the county or, or even uh, the, 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 a class outside of yours where your circle of friends is that those that are on the outside of your group Who are the outsiders in your life? Because if God is willing to love an outsider like you, how does that affect your love for the outsiders around you? How does God's love of bringing you into His covenant family affect the way that you love people outside of your own family? The exclusive claims of Christ are inclusive not just for the outsider, but the Gospel also includes the fallen. Not the fallen as in the deceased, but the fallen as in the disgraced. The fallen as in the sinful. The fallen that have lost their status and glory because they are considered an opponent to God. That instead of righteousness... That they are characterized by their sinfulness. In verse 8, Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And he's referencing the, the life that he formerly lived, persecuting the church, that when we first meet Paul, at the the tail end of, of Acts 7, beginning of Acts 8, that when Stephen is stoned to death, that it says Saul, which was Paul's Jewish name, Saul stood there giving approval. He gave approval to Stephen's execution. Not that he just stood by and watched it happen, but that he approved of it. He thought that this was a good thing. And then the next time that we see Saul in the book of Acts, that he's actively engaged in hunting down churches and persecuting Christians. And Paul, knowing his sinfulness and the, the past that he had, says, even to me, as the least of all the saints, God has given me this. That this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the outsiders, the unsearchable riches of Christ. That this One who is so focused on preserving the Jewish law that He was hunting down the Christian church has now extended that gospel not just to Israel but to the nations that this mystery that has been hidden for the for for ages for generations that the mystery of the gospel being for everyone is now being revealed by the one who is trying to stop it and this is the 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 heart of the gospel Because the natural condition of the human heart, of my heart, of your heart, is to be opposed to God Himself. In Romans chapter 5, which was also written by Paul. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. So did you notice that progression? That He went from while we were still weak to while we were still sinners to while we were enemies of God. That the natural condition of your heart is that you are an enemy of God. And even in that state, before you had even done anything to make uh, God show His favor on you, God said, I'm going to love that person anyway. To the weak and sinful, to the enemy, God loves first and reconciles a broken relationship. That while you were still an enemy, that Christ took your sin upon Himself and nailed it to a cross. That Jesus took the death that you deserved and gave you His righteousness. And in His resurrection, He gives you hope and life. And this life and the life to come. I can't think of anything more inclusive than that. That it's not just love and favor extended to people who are already doing nice things, but that when you were still violently opposed to God, that when your sin was nailing Jesus to a cross, that He brought you in, that He forgave your sin, that He gave you Christ's righteousness and made you part of His family. That... Is the mystery of inclusiveness. That's the beauty of the Gospel revealed. That in a world where people unfriend one another on social media just based off of who each other votes for. In a world where you can be sued if you disagree with with someone's personal life or lifestyle. In a world where we continue to push our enemies and even our friends closer or farther and farther away, that Jesus says that even though you were an enemy, I died for you. It's completely counter to logic and reason. Completely counter to the human heart. And what do you do with that? That when you were still an enemy, that your sin nailed Christ to the cross. God loved you and redeemed you and called you His. And so in light of this relationship, of the vertical relationship between God and you, that God is so inclusive that He brings you into His family, how does this relationship affect these relationships? If God can love you when you were an enemy of His, how can you love the others around you that seem opposed to you? I'm not saying that as a church that we're going to go give ISIS a hug, but I'm saying the the people that are in your life that are uh, opposed to the way that you live or the things that you believe, the people that are different from you The people who fight and argue with you, how do you love them? Because if God's love can love an enemy like you, how do you share that love with others? And then we see that the exclusive claims of Christ are inclusive not just for the outsiders or for the fallen but the Gospel also includes those who are suffering. We read in, in verse 11 that this was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. That this plan, this eternal plan of God Fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you realize this, but the, the ministry of Christ Himself focused on those who were hurting. Focused on those who were suffering. The outsiders. The, reject, the rejects. That He loved and included lepers and beggars and adulterers. A prostitute was part of his inner circle. The grace that he shows to a paraplegic lowered through a torn hole in someone else's roof. That his ministry was all about loving the unlovable. Loving those who are hurting. Those who are rejected and alone. He even says in Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The ones that are suffering shall know comfort. Jesus himself suffered as he was betrayed and beaten and abandoned and crucified. And Paul suffered for the sake of the Gospel, for advancing the Gospel outside of Israel to the nations of the world, for taking God's kingdom and including the outsider. Paul suffered. And in verse 13, he says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory that Paul's suffering led to glory for the nations. That his suffering led to the advancing of the gospel and the advancing of God's kingdom. And I say that not in a twisted way to say, well, you just need to go out and you need to suffer more. But I say that in a sense to say, welcome to the club. Because the gospel of Christ is for those who suffer, those who hurt, those who grieve, those who mourn. If you are suffering today, you are in good company. That the very Son of God Himself, God in the flesh, suffered to include the suffering into God's kingdom. That Christianity itself is not A faith of strength, but of scars. The scars that Christ took on your behalf. And that when we see Him again, that we'll even see the scars on His wrists and in His feet. And say that those paid for me. But the scars that you bear in your own life and on your own heart. The scars that shape your outlook on life. And if you're honest, you're really good at putting on the mask and covering up those scars. Because it hurts to show scars to people. It hurts to be honest and reveal our wounds to other people. But I'm a firm believer that scars reveal the faithfulness of God to His people. I'm a firm believer that scars shape the way that you the way that you view others, the way that you view the outsiders and the rejects. The way that you love and serve the unlovable that your scars shape your ministry. Not to minimize your suffering. It's real. It's valid but to say that you are not alone. That you are surrounded by others who have suffered. And this is the hope for the Christian. That our suffering is not in vain because we read in Revelation 21, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, Where there is no more suffering, that there will be no more tears and death and sorrow, because the suffering that Christ endured on your behalf brings hope of eternal life. And that through the exclusive claims of Christ, that that hope invites the outsider and the fallen and those who are suffering, and He says, I am with you today. There is hope for tomorrow. And so I have to ask, what about you? Will you search for inclusiveness and trying to belong in an exclusive culture, hoping that being good enough or supporting just the right cause can bring peace amidst the chaos of life? Or will you submit to the exclusive claims of Christ? the one who invites the outsider and the fallen and the suffering, the one who says, I am with you. There is hope. Which will you choose? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank You for Your love for us. That You have taken this group of outsiders and rejects and You have brought us in to Your family. That You call us Your own. Not because we've done anything to earn it. In fact, just the opposite. We did nothing to earn it because we were opposed to You. But God, You loved us first and You brought us in to Your family. And so God, I pray for all of us here that we would find our hope not in the things that we do, not in trying to be good enough, but that we would find our hope and that You were good enough for us first. We would find our hope in realizing that You are with us today and that there is hope of eternal life for tomorrow. Help us to take that hope and that love that You showed to us first and extend it to the outsiders around us to the broken and fallen around us, to those who suffer around us. Let us take the love that You gave to us and advance Your kingdom by sharing Your love. God, we thank You. We love You. And we pray this in the victorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.